0: what's listed as a symptom of dementia like aggression or irritation or depression is not necessarily a symptom of the disease itself, it can be a symptom of being in the wrong environment. So if you're having trouble finding your room, you can imagine that that would be aggravating or irritating or troubling and might cause you to lash out. And it's not because of the dementia itself, it's because you're in this environment that really isn't fitting your needs.
1: Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. If there's one thing we've all got in common right now, it's that we are spending a lot of time indoors lately. Sometimes that's good. Most of us are probably kind of eager to get away from the open office plan, um, and we're exceptionally eager to not get ourselves and other people sick. Um, sometimes it's not so great, uh, especially if you're stuck in a place without many good windows. And sometimes you might just want to make a few improvements to your indoor space, maybe a house plant or a bookcase that looks good on Zoom. But have you thought beyond that? Spending so much time indoors, have you thought about how our indoor spaces are designed and what that means for us? I admit I hadn't until now. I'm here with Emily Anthes. She's a journalist whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, Wired, The New Yorker, and many more fancy outlets. And just in time for us spending all our time inside, she's the author of the new book, The Great Indoors, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behavior, Health, and Happiness, due out on June 23rd. Thanks so much for being here, Emily. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. First, I just want to establish that this whole pandemic thing where we are stuck in our houses is not your fault, right?
0: No, I had nothing to do with
1: it, uh, I promise. Okay, just checking. Um, and I admit, when I started reading your book, I was a little, I guess, surprised by the premise, even though on reflection, I shouldn't have been. <laughs> I guess it's that when I think about science journalists, I think about people wanting to go to the great outdoors and write about endangered llamas or something. Um, what made you want to write about the indoors?
0: Well, I uh, I guess I should first say that I would love to go to the great outdoors and write about endangered llamas. Uh, that sounds like a great story idea, too. Um, I mean, one thing I talk about in the introduction is, despite liking nature and hiking and those sorts of things, at heart, I'm really an indoorsy person. You know, I like to be cozy inside and to read. And, you know, that's sort of where I've always felt most myself and most comfortable. Um, And the book sort of grew out of following for several years, seeing studies come out on how various aspects of the indoor environment affect us. So, you know, anything from how a certain kind of architecture is processed by the brain to how the microbes that live on our bodies colonize our houses. And so I just sort of made mental notes of these studies and sort of filed them away. And at a certain point, it seemed like there was enough of a critical mass that I began to think, huh, like there's something really here. There are scientists that are really probing these indoor environments. And maybe that's something that is worth exploring in a book.
1: And I have to say, one of the things I loved about your book was that it wasn't just a history of the home or something. (laughs) Um, It was actually about indoor design in all sorts of fascinating ways, um, including one thing that none of us miss right now, the open office plan. Um, So I wanted to start by asking where this hellish idea came from.
0: (laughs) Well, so offices, sort of as we think of them, um, are relatively new innovation. Um, They emerged sort of in the late or mid-late 19th century. um, And they actually grew out of a couple of different trends. Um, So one was sort of the growth of administrative work itself, which has not always been a big part of labor. I mean, if you think about um, industrial work and farming, some of that did not come with a lot of paperwork, at least initially. And so as administrative work and specialization and professionalization happened in a lot of industries, that sort of led to the growth of jobs that we sort of think of as white collar. Um, and the office was really also facilitated by new kinds of technology. Um, when you think about like telecommunications technology, like phones and telegraphs, um, that allowed clerical workers to work in a physical location that was separate from, you know, their employer's actual farms or factories. It gave rise to this idea of having clerical and administrative workers in sort of their own building or location. And as offices became more common and held more people, companies started to sort of seek the same kinds of efficiencies that they had gone after in factories. And so you start to see, you know, big open rooms with rows of desks, uh, densely packed workers. And initially there was a lot of focus on sort of the scientific approach to management and administration. And so you see, desk workers being treated sort of essentially like line workers on a factory floor, um, you know, just cram them in and give them a space where they can churn out as much office work as they can. Um, and so that's still what sort of drives a lot of the open office today is there are a lot of downsides, which we can talk about, but they're cheap for companies and they're efficient. um, And that's what matters often more than employee well-being or satisfaction.
1: That's interesting. I hadn't really thought of the idea of original office design being designed around like a line production system, (laughs) you know, because white collar writing administrative work is is so not line production. Right. Um, But when you describe it that way, it makes sense. Right, and I mean a
0: lot of these jobs, you know, were not creative jobs, and even maybe not what we might think of as knowledge work. It was, you know, more drudgery, paperwork, like it, keeping inventory, and um, you know, it's the sort of work that I think a lot of bosses thought could be just as mechanized as churning out widgets on on a factory floor.
1: And so that, in a way, the very first offices with these rows of desks were kind of the first open office. But then people kind of got into the idea of using individual offices um, and kind of each person having their own individual office. So where did we come up with the idea of the modern open office? Who who thought that was a good idea? Yeah, well, the,
0: you could sort of see where the idea might come from or why you might think it's a good idea, that, I mean, and the commonly cited benefit of it is, you know, collaboration and creativity and communication. And that if you put all these people out in a big room together, then it will foster camaraderie. And, you know, you might have heard of this idea of collisions, you know, office workers run into each other more frequently, then they'll have new ideas that, that they wouldn't otherwise have, and they'll collaborate across departments. So that's sort of the Rationale for it. I mean, we can talk about whether or not that's really true. Spoiler alert, it probably is not. Um, but that is at least one of the stated rationales. Personally, I think the cost savings, uh, still have a lot to do with why employers like it and also the flexibility. You can imagine, you know, if you have 60 private offices and the company dramatically restructures, it's a lot harder to change up The structure of your company, um, because you're sort of tied into these 60 enclosed offices. Whereas if it's a big open room, then it gives you a lot of flexibility to change the space and change how the company works uh, if you need to.
1: And yeah, I was really struck by um, the section you had about flexibility and open office plans, because a couple of companies have really benefited um, from this flexibility. And one of them is WeWork. Mm -hmm. Um, And WeWork actually uses this data-driven approach to kind of switch up their office plan and in theory create office plans that are better and better by like altering the color of the walls and all this kind of stuff um but i was floored by how much information they collect to design these spaces can you talk about the kind of data collection that WeWork pulls in
0: absolutely um and i should say that uh listeners may know that uh there have been some changes at WeWork uh, since I reported and and wrote about this. Uh, The company's had some challenges, and I'm not sure how much of this is still going on. Um, But essentially, WeWork, you know, like you might expect from a modern company, uses um, digital tools, phones and apps and things like that to manage its spaces. So they have these communal meeting rooms um, in each of their um, locations. And if you want to reserve one, you do that through an app. And so just through the process of having all of their clients continually reserving meeting rooms uh, through the app, they collect all that data and they can analyze it um, to tell, for instance, like which meeting rooms are most in demand. And when a meeting wraps up, you'll also get sort of a ping or notification from the app that says, you know, rate this room and give us feedback. And so the company can, you know, look across their data set and see like, is there something in common between the meeting rooms that are most in demand? Is there something that the meeting rooms that tend to be poorly rated get have in common? Um, So that's just one example. I mean, they also keep uh, like a big database on the private office spaces that are rented out and they can do the same sort of analysis. Like some of these offices go really quickly on the market and some of them take a lot longer to find clients and, and customers and, and takers essentially. So like one Not entirely intuitive insight that came out of this was they realized that the square office spaces they had were getting snapped up a lot faster than the rectangular ones. Um, And they don't know exactly why this is, though they speculate that it's probably because a square office gives you more flexibility in how you lay it out and how you use the space. Um, Whereas if it's more rectangular, maybe there are more limitations on how you can arrange your desks or something like that. Um, there are other insights that are maybe a little more obvious, like offices that have windows are a lot more popular than those without them. Um, but they just have hundreds of thousands of data points on how their customers in different cities, states and countries use their space, which is which of their spaces are most popular. And they can do all sorts of different um, analyses of it.
1: And You know, they do, uh, they rent out office spaces, but we work as kind of the, kind of the quintessential, like open office. Everyone comes in, like grabs a couch or something and spends the day on their laptop. Um, and you know, many of us are, uh, kind of doomed to cubicles, open office plans, uh, that sort of thing. It's really popular in newsrooms right now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was actually wondering, um, there's a lot of us who are just employees. We can't opt out of an open office if somebody says we need to have one. Um, do you have any advice for putting up with it?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a hard question. I'm no fan of them either. Um And, you know, as employees, there's sometimes you've Often, I guess you have limited control over, um, your workplace environment. Um, I mean, you may be able to band together as a group and ask for some changes. Um, I suspect a lot of companies aren't going to be super receptive to that. Um, so there are smaller adjustments that you could either ask for, um, or make yourself. Um, so one thing maybe you could ask for is, you know, temporary, or not temporary, but um, sort of low tech partitions between spaces. Um, and this is actually something that a lot of companies are instituting on their own right now because of the Coronavirus. So, you know, if they have employees sharing these big long tables, they're putting up sort of plexiglass dividers or, even cardboard dividers between workstations, um, and they're doing that for infectious disease purposes, but that can also give you a little bit of privacy and, and control over your space. Um, I mean, things like headphones and white noise can help. One of the big challenges with open offices is the noise distraction, um, and especially uh, research shows hearing half of a conversation um, so if someone sitting near you is talking on the phone that is really distracting um, but then you may also be able to depending on your workspace um, ask for or just engage in what researchers call activity based working so even if you have your assigned, seat and it's not ideal because it's out in the middle of like a huge pen. You know, maybe there's a lounge area or a conference room that's not used very much. And you might be able to go work from there for a few hours a day. Maybe if you're working on something where you need to read a lot, you can, there's a couch you can go sit on. And research on on these types of workspaces is still ongoing, but It's encouraging and people like to have control over their own workspaces, um, obviously, and the ability to move around depending on the task you're engaged in um, seems to be helpful as well. So if there's any way, even if you can't change your actual sort of assigned desk, you can find other ways and places to work uh, that may be helpful, too.
1: Of course, right now, you know, no one's actually in the office. Right. <laughs> um, instead, we are actually giving a lot of thought to another large built environment, hospitals. Um, and this is interesting because until I read your book, I always assumed that hospitals were designed right for medical care and uh-huh. designed really efficiently. I, I don't know why I assumed this. <laughs> But it turns out they're not necessarily. Um, I really loved that it turns out that Florence Nightingale had something to do with early hospitals. Um, She's so cool. Can you talk about her role in hospital design? Sure.
0: Um, So hospitals have gone through a lot of different phases of design. um, And we sort of see, you know, for a long part of history, especially in like the Middle Ages, Hospitals and healthcare were really associated with the church. And so you saw, um, you know, different religious orders running hospitals and monasteries would have infirmaries. And that was sort of how medical care was provided outside the home. Um, it wasn't until the sort of 18th and 19th century that you start to see big sort of secular hospitals proliferate. Um, and that happened sort of as medicine itself became sort of more scientific and professionalized. Um, But these were really not the kind of place you wanted to get sick in. Um, And during that time, if you could afford it, you would have a doctor come to your home. Hospitals were really places that people who were poor went to get medical care. Um, And they were actually more dangerous. They had higher mortality rates than being treated at home. They were overcrowded. They were dark. They were dirty. Um, Patients sometimes even shared beds which you can imagine is not um, ideal from an infectious <laughs> disease point of view. And so they were really sort of places of squalor, um, not the kind of place you would want to end up. Um, and so Florence Nightingale um, noticed these things. Uh, in particular, she noticed them. She went to Turkey um, in the 1850s um, to, as, as part of a contingent of nurses who were taking care of British soldiers who had been injured in the Crimean War. And she was stationed in this hospital that was located in a converted barracks. And it had a lot of these same problems I just mentioned. So it was uh, sanitation was really poor. Um, the water was contaminated. The floors of the hospital were actually covered in sewage. Um, there were infestations of lice and rodents. And she was just appalled by these conditions. And so she launched this effort to sort of make over and clean up these hospital wards. Um, and so that was everything from, you know, simple tasks like actually cleaning and bathing the patients and cleaning their linens and the hospital sheets. Um, but she also put a lot of emphasis on fresh air and ventilation, uh, getting breeze and cross, cross draft coming in um, through these wards and on sunlight. Um, and after she came back from her tour of duty there, she really went on to advocate for these things. She published a bunch of reports calling for reforms in hospital design and operation, um, recommending that patients each get more personal space, um, that hospital buildings and designers orient the buildings in a way so that um, maximize sunlight and daylight coming into the patient wards and to really prioritize natural ventilation. Um, she wasn't the only one calling for these things, uh, but she was part of a group of hospital reformers that were arguing for these things. And you did see hospitals in the second half of the 19th century uh, implement a lot of these ideas. Uh, there were these hospital designs are uh, known as the Pavilion Hospital that really had these long, narrow sort of wards, uh, like fingers sticking out of a hand. Um, and they were arranged in such a way that um, every patient had access to fresh air, to daylight. Um, you got ventilation coming across all the wards, which were separated by these big gardens. And they really uh, changed what hospitals could look like and be.
1: What I find fascinating about this is that, you know, Florence Nightingale did not do rigorous scientific study on the benefits of light and air, mm-hmm. um, but she was right.
0: She was definitely right. And a lot of research since then uh, backs up her intuition. Um, you know, ventilation is a great way to reduce the concentration of pathogens in the air. I mean, that's one thing that you're seeing a lot of discussion now, again, with the coronavirus. You know, even something as simple as opening a window brings in more air from the outside and really dilutes the concentration of pathogens indoors. Um, We've also learned that, well, sunlight and daylight have a huge number of benefits, um, including boosting mood, improving sleep, reducing stress, but it turns out that the UV light and sunlight can also um, inactivate a lot of pathogens, Uh, so that can be helpful helpful, uh, from an infectious disease perspective as well. Um, So she didn't know all these things, and in fact, the germ theory of disease was not even really... um, had not really been popularized when she was calling for these reforms, but she intuited that these things made a difference. And we now have the research to prove it.
1: You know, it's, it's amazing to think how important, those little things you know just having a window that opens and having sunlight it just makes a huge difference but I also know I personally have spent a night or two in the hospital Uh and I have to say that even though I had just been cut open at the time which is kind of an exhausting thing I could not sleep Uh and this was partially the effect of all the lights being on all the time but also it was loud. Why are hospitals loud?
0: Hospitals are so loud. Um,
1: so loud. And
0: you know, I don't. It's actually I don't haven't seen research on this, but I would suspect that they've actually gotten louder, um, at least until recently, because of the increasing use of and ubiquity of technology. A lot of the noises you're hearing are the beeps and boops and alarms from machines. Um, you hear intercoms, you know, people being paged. Uh, you hear people walking up and down the halls, you know, the echoing of footsteps. Um, and some of those noises you can understand why they have. Um, I mean, you can understand why they might need to page, you know, if there's a code blue to send out a, a loud page so whoever's nearby can come respond. Um but there are ways around a lot of those noises, um, you know, from um, different kinds of pagers that don't make sound to different kinds of alarms that are less noisy uh, and then changing the environment as well. Like A lot of hospitals have these ceiling tiles that just reflect sound and make the problem worse, um, but you can install sound-absorbing ceiling tiles, which, you know, don't make a patient room completely silent, but they can help reduce the the noise a lot and improve patient sleep. And of course, if you improve patient sleep, that has a lot of other benefits for patients as well. So really, by cutting down on noise, you can foster and facilitate healing.
1: One of the other things that people are kind of thinking about in terms of the hospitals of the future is uh, people are thinking about how to design hospitals that will work to prevent the spread of bacteria, um, because much as a virus is on our minds right now, for a long time, doctors have been facing the prospect of a future where bacterial infections will again become dangerous as bacteria evolve resistance to the drugs that we use to fight them. And that means that hospitals need to prepare for a post-antibiotic future. Um, So I really loved the section where you talked about how you might design a hospital for a post-antibiotic future. What does a post-antibiotic hospital look like?
0: Well, yeah, you stated it perfectly though I should say that a lot of these innovations will actually help reduce the spread of viruses too. I mean, the same kinds of ideas um reduce spread of all sorts of contagious pathogens. Um, but there, you can really get a glimpse of this future um, at a building that I talk about at some length. It's an infectious disease building department of a hospital in Sweden. And they started designing this building in 2005, which was shortly after SARS. Um, and I don't know if everyone remembers, but SARS spread some of the big SARS clusters originated in hospitals and in hospital emergency rooms. Patients would come in, there's a famous cluster in Toronto, patients would come into the ER, you know, cough all over the place. Other patients in the ER would get the disease. They would then spread it to their nurses, doctors, their families. Um, It's a common way by which some of these diseases can spread. So these hospital planners really wanted to reduce that kind of thing. So they really did this in a variety of different ways, but they built it into the building's bones. Um, And the most interesting set of strategies uh, they embarked upon, they really thought about patient flow and circulation. So the idea is you want to prevent any patient who might have an infectious disease from coming into contact with other people, whether that's other patients, um, other nurses and doctors, you want to minimize their exposure. And so this hospital did that in a couple of ways. Um, First, so the ground floor of this building, which hosts the ER and the outpatient clinic, they created a couple of isolation rooms. And what's really interesting about what they did is they have doors to these isolation rooms directly from the outside. So if a patient comes in or a patient is incoming, being transported by ambulance, or transferred from another facility, and there's reason to think that they have something infectious, you can route them directly from the outdoors into a private isolation room. So that completely eliminates the possibility that they're going to sit in some communal waiting room, sort of coughing and spewing pathogens into the air. They also... Did a really interesting thing with the inpatient wards, uh, which are on the second, third, and fourth floors of the building. Uh, The building itself is circular, and the inpatient floors have balconies that wrap all the way around the building and stairs that connect down to the outpatient clinic and ER. And if a patient is admitted, they are taken to their room through these outdoor walkways, and they use these walkways to access and entrance that goes directly, again, into private patient rooms. Um, There are interior corridors, but they're reserved for the use of hospital staff who can then enter and exit patient rooms that way. So there's really, you're really cutting down on the odds that these patients are going to be passing by other people in sort of enclosed areas and spreading their germs. Um, so there are a lot of other sort of smaller things, um, this hospital has done. I mean, one is just the use of, of private rooms in general, um, which there's a lot of evidence that that is far and away the best thing you can do to reduce hospital spread of disease is to give patients all their own rooms. Um, and that's sort of gaining currency as an intervention. And then there are other, things like convenient placement of hand sanitizing stations and sinks. Um, If you put them right at the point of care, like by the patient bedside, uh, that can really increase adherence with hand-washing protocols um, and, you know, other types of interventions like pressurizing the air in certain ways that any pathogens that are airborne are unlikely to, flow out into common spaces.
1: And I was really interested when you were talking about hospital design, that it's not just necessarily about the individual patient experience. Um, you got to study what happens when people redesign an operating room, which was awesome. I had actually never thought about this before. Why do they always put patients in the middle of the operating room?
0: Uh just out of convention, habit, um, you know, like I'm not sure that it's been, so, there was more of a rationale for it than that. It, I guess it just seemed like if you have this space, um, you might as well put the patient in the center. I, I guess you could also think about that might give all the people that are in an operating room, which, you know, can often be as many as a dozen if you think about nurses, doctors, med students, um, anyone else, I guess that gives them more space to move around the table. Um, But it really hadn't been challenged, this idea that you just put the OR table in the center of the room. Um, But these researchers that I followed um, did challenge that idea, and they decided to see what would happen if they put I'm trying to figure out how to describe this best. They essentially, they angled the operating table and sort of pushed it into a corner. So the table was sort of emerging from the corner of the room, almost on a diagonal. And they found that that had a couple of benefits that for one that gave the anesthesiologist sort of a protected workspace. So the anesthesiologist will often sit Usually sit at sort of the patient's head, uh, so they can monitor, um, everything throughout the procedure. And they have a lot of really complex tasks, a lot of machinery. They need to concentrate. And so when you give them this protected corner in the room, that sort of reduces the chances that someone's gonna jostle them or interrupt them or otherwise sort of interfere with with their work. And then that also opens up the space at the foot of the operating table where a lot of people are moving around. And that reduces the chance that, you know, um, some of the nurses and doctors in the operating room will run into each other or run into equipment that's in the way. And that gives them sort of more open space to move around in and to work in.
1: I actually wonder how much the whole putting the patient in the middle of the operating room um, kind of stems from the history of operating theaters um, and the idea that originally when they operated on people, they would do it in a theater Mm -hmm. surrounded by med students watching. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I wonder if there was some of that too, like it just became tradition because of course you'd have lots of people looking down at the person.
0: Right. And in a certain way, they're sort of the protagonist of the whole whatever you're there to do, right? So you put them in the center, so um, everyone can see and work on them. I mean, that's an interesting theory I hadn't thought of. But uh, for whatever reason, it just became convention, even though there was no, not necessarily any evidence that that was what worked best.
1: And I was also very glad that in the book, you devoted a bunch of space to thinking about how we design spaces for people who experience the world differently. Um, because it's amazing how much design just assumes that we can hear or see or process a lot of sensory information at the same time. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the concept of universal design, which I really loved.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and there's been some really interesting and good work recently, even on sex and gender and just about how many things in the world are designed for, you know, and, able-bodied six foot man and like if that's not you then you can face all sorts of challenges in using products and environments um but i the, mean i feel
1: like that's not even the majority of people right
0: no <laughs> you know? well i mean women alone are roughly half the population right so and a, a good when chunk
1: you, are not and a good chunk of men are not six feet tall right so.
0: yes um exactly but so you know people are probably familiar with the concept of accessibility and accessible design. Um, and that has been sort of the prevailing paradigm for, you know, the second half of the 20th century, The those few decades. There was really a focus on making spaces, quote unquote, accessible, and in particular, accessible to people who use wheelchairs or have other disabilities that Impair their mobility in some way. And so you see things like wheelchair ramps or, you know, lowered sinks and toilets in bathrooms, automatic doors. And, you know, those were critical improvements, but they also left a lot of people out. A lot of people, as you said, experience the world differently and not because they're in wheelchairs, because they are deaf or because they are autistic and are easily overloaded by sensory stimuli. And traditionally, those sorts of needs have not gotten nearly as much attention from architects and designers. And so accessible design has sort of given way to this newer idea, which is known as universal design. And the idea is not simply to make a building like, quote unquote, accessible for people People who might otherwise, you know, have trouble getting into it. But it's to create environments that are usable and welcoming to all sorts of people um, at all walks of life. So, you know, from children to the very old um, with all kinds of abilities and disabilities. And also to do more than just allow quote unquote access, but really to make these spaces usable and welcoming and friendly to everyone.
1: Yeah, and it it was really interesting because even as our parents get older, as we get older, um, I I find it interesting that many people do not really think about the elderly when we think about design. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what are some aspects of universal design that can help people who are aging? Well, so
0: there are a lot of different um, ideas there, and it sort of depends on whether you're talking about physical limitations or uh, there's been a lot of work on dementia. Um, but, you know, a common, um, a, a common idea that's, you know, won't take anyone by surprise is something like reducing stairs. So designing homes that are all one level or ramps instead of stairs, even before, or if someone is not in a wheelchair, Because if their mobility needs change, that's sort of more flexible for them. But then there are a lot of um, design interventions that can also just really help with mood and cognitive functioning. Um, And a lot of those things are the same types of designs that are good for anyone. So, like ample light is something that's really good for anyone. But because of how our eyes change, people who are older often need a lot brighter light in order to keep their circadian rhythms in sync. And so one thing that's really important is to provide ample access to daylight. Um, also to prevent, uh, sorry, also to um, create environments that are engaging. I think sometimes we have gone too far in the direction of sort of protection. So you'll see a lot of senior homes that are sort of white and simple, sort of white boxes that sort of reduce any sort of obstacle or challenge. But there's a lot of evidence that sort of staying engaged and stimulated both physically and mentally is good for our health and well-being and longevity. So you have to sort of strike this balance between reducing actual safety risks, but still providing environments that are stimulating and interesting and, you know, have music and color and pattern and texture and things like that. Um, And then there's some more specific interventions that if you're talking about people with dementia can be helpful. So there have been studies on, you know, dementia units of senior homes and how can you help people stay oriented and find their rooms? And, you know, something that might be common in that sort of environment is a long room, uh, sorry, a long hallway of bedrooms where sort of every door looks the same. And as you can imagine, that is not a great environment for someone who's having trouble navigating. Um, Honestly,
1: it's not a great environment for people who are good at navigating.
0: (laughs) No, it's not a great environment for anyone. Um, But what's interesting is that, you know, sometimes what's listed as a symptom of dementia, like aggression or irritation or depression, is not necessarily... A symptom of the disease itself, it can be a symptom of being in the wrong environment. So if you're having trouble finding your room, you can imagine that that would be aggravating or irritating or troubling and might cause you to lash out. And it's not because of the dementia itself. It's because you're in this environment that really isn't fitting your needs. Um, so that's a really interesting insight that one of my sources talked to me a lot about is how environments that don't fit our needs can create all these other problems for us.
1: And you also um spent some time in the book talking about medical interventions um for the elderly um specifically uh most particularly things like fall detection. Mm-hmm. Um and it's really it's these cool systems with like motion capture and like all this cool stuff. There's lots of sensors and a whole suite of designs. Um, and I was very interested because it, it does involve a lot of these. There's smart mattresses and, you know, probably smart water glasses and certainly, you know, smart fall detectors. Um, but a lot of these involve taking a lot of data, um, mm-hmm. on people. And what does that mean for the privacy of these seniors who are, you know, our parents and someday they're going to be us? Um, wh- what does it mean for their privacy?
0: Yeah that's a really good question and a really important ongoing issue um and of course it's a concern with any of these technologies about how what data are these devices collecting on us are they transmitting it securely who has access to it um i mean one thing that can happen, and we've seen it happen, is you might say, like, oh, I'm fine with this small, smart glass startup having data on my drinking habits. Like, I trust them. But then what if Google buys that company? And then do they get access to it? So we're giving up data that even if we give consent for it to be used in a certain way by a certain person today, That could easily change down the line. Um, And also, as technology improves, uh, data analysis technology and AI technology, we're finding that we can learn a lot more about people than maybe we saw when they gave us consent to collect that data. So we might be revealing things that we didn't intend to reveal. So all of these are questions in general when anyone uses these devices and they get even more complicated when you start talking about a senior population. And especially a lot of these technologies are designed for seniors who might have dementia or cognitive impairments. And then you get into really sticky questions about consent. And like there's a really fine line between technology that's sort of for safety and or that may be enabling to someone with dementia and technology that's really more paternal, big brother, um, sort of patronizing to some of these people. Um, and what do you do if their grown children want, you know, mom and dad to be monitored by a camera on their or a smart alarm on their doors so they don't go off wandering, but mom and dad don't want that. Um, And those are really tricky ethical questions that there's not really a simple answer to.
1: Yeah. I was, I was wondering, I think you did talk to a couple ethicists about this. Are there ethicists who are, you know, thinking about, you know, health based interventions and health and health based design? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And
0: you know, they don't have um, easy answers either. But I mean, one thing that is very clear, um, and this is true, I think, across sort of all all classes of innovation, but, you know, policy is not keeping up. And even, you know, they talk about the European Union having sort of the best privacy protections. Um, but even those are not adequate and are not, nearly uh, keeping pace with the pace of innovation. And so one thing they all talk about is that we need a lot more regulation for protecting consumers, protecting their data, um, m- making sure that people have always have sort of final ultimate say over their data and where it goes and who has access to it. Um, that's a really big one. Um, and that also you can opt out at any time. So even if you you know, give permission for your data to be used when you sign up one day for one purpose. If you change your mind, you can sort of rescind that permission. Um, those are all really important principles. And there's disagreement about sort of how you accomplish those things. But there are a lot of ethicists thinking about this.
1: I also uh, really, we were, as we're talking about the concept of universal design, I loved the section that you talked about um, a place called first place. Um, which is designed specifically for people who um are on the autism spectrum. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of changes there are when you start designing for people who don't experience the world the same way? Sure. Um, so the
0: first thing I should say is that there's no such thing as one size fits all design. And that's true whether you're you know design, no matter who you're designing for um and also when you're designing for autistic people so you know you may have heard the the adage that if you've met one person with autism you've met one person with autism um and that's because it's a really complex heterogeneous condition and everyone has different strengths and abilities and needs um and so there isn't sort of a hard and fast this is the ideal environment for an autistic young adult.
1: Well, That's and it's it. the same thing for, you know, anyone. <laughs> no course. no one size apartment is gonna fit anyone. And right. you know, the the only reason we don't necessarily think about it is because, you know, people many people do not, you know, know someone with autism or experience autism themselves. And so they don't necessarily think about the same issues. They just know that they personally love accent walls.
0: So with that caveat out of the way, there are some general principles that um, might be helpful for designers who are creating spaces for people who are on the spectrum. Um, And one of them is that many people with autism are really sensitive to sensory stimuli, um, to noises, to smells, to um, flickering lights, things like that. And so really, trying to minimize uh, those sorts of stimuli in the environment um, by doing things like avoiding fluorescent lights, which can flicker and buzz, or thinking about something that doesn't seem very sort of sexy to talk about, but like an HVAC system in an apartment building. Um, if you have shared airflow between apartments and scents are wafting in of your neighbor cooking dinner, um, that can be hard for someone who has sensory sensitivity. So really trying to minimize those sorts of stimuli, um, investing in things like really solid soundproofing. Um, so there's not noise spilling over from the apartment next door. Um, some people recommend thinking about like soft muted color palettes. But again, that's the thing that kind of thing that's really tricky. Um, you know, some people with autism really like bright colors as, some people without autism really like bright colors. So those sorts of things are trickier. Um, but one key is to really provide variety. So something that is sort of a misconception about autistic people is that because social interaction can sometimes be challenging, uh, sometimes designers and people in general assume that they aren't interested in having social relationships or social interactions. Um, and that's not true at all. Um, or it may be true for some people, but many autistic people want the same friendships and relationships and um you know, romantic partnerships that anyone else does. Um, but the key, and here I'm thinking if you're designing sort of an apartment building, which is what I talk about in the book, is to provide variety and control. So the designers of this apartment building created a lot of different common spaces. Some of them are, you know, big open lounges um, that look sort of like lobbies, with couches, but they also have what they call these tiny pocket lounges that are really only fit two people, but two residents can go play a game of cards there. And it's sort of much more secluded. It's quieter. And that gives people the opportunity to opt into environments that they feel comfortable in and that they like. Um, and likewise, one of the really interesting things that um, they did that is kind of subtle is all of the entrances to the individual apartments are set Back a little bit from the sort of hallway of circulation, um, and they did that because they wanted to give people the opportunity to sort of step out of their apartment without needing to step directly into a major path of circulation. So that provides like a little bit of a transitional space uh, for people for whom walking right into a big, you know, crowd of people might be a challenge. Um, and one of the lessons of this kind of design. Because a lot of these ideas are really good design ideas for anyone. Um, so you can imagine, like, I live in an apartment building, and I would also appreciate a variety of different spaces that I could choose from, depending on my mood and needs at that moment. Um, and so what's interesting about designing for someone with autism or someone who's deaf or you know, someone who has another kind of uh, difference or disability is that often what turns out to be the case is that they're just less tolerant of what we would think of as bad design. And so things that the rest of us might put up with or have gotten used to um, can really sometimes affect their functioning. And so by paying attention to what they need and Trying to create environments that are welcoming and friendly and work for people with disabilities, what you often do is end up creating an environment that's better for everyone.
1: I just love that point. I think that's so important.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're helping us identify ways in which our design decisions are often bad for all of us. Um, and so um, they have a lot to teach us.
1: And I was also really thrilled that you spent time on an aspect of design that people often probably think about last and that's prisons. Um so first I wanted to ask where did we get modern prison design from? So that's another thing like hospitals that
0: you know before I really thought about it I sort of assumed that had always been with us. Um you know, prisons, like we've always needed prisons, right? But actually, imprisonment itself um, is a pretty new form of punishment. So if you think about like, early forms of punishment, um, for most of history, it was corporal punishment, you know, someone would be beaten, or executed, or they'd be banished, or, you know, forced to uh, perform hard labor of some sort. And so people weren't really you know, people would be held somewhere maybe um, until their sentence could be meted out. But this idea of spending a long period of time confined somewhere as a form of punishment is a relatively new uh, innovation. But in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, the idea of detention As a form of punishment, um, started to become a bit more common. You started to see jails and prisons, um, emerge. And those early buildings were really just like creating a large holding pen for criminals or accused criminals. And the only real priority for a designer was to create a space that would keep someone from escaping. And so. The designs really went heavy on the sort of imposing physical barriers, bars and walls and um, things like that. Um, inmate what, Well The
1: dungeon motif.:
0: Exactly. <laughs> And, you know, inmate wellness was not a concept, let alone a priority. You know, one of the facts that stuck with me is that prisoners would often die of starvation. Like, that's how little their sort of welfare mattered. They just wouldn't get fed enough. Um, but sort of what we think of as modern prisons really came into being in the 18th century. Um, reformers began to view a lot of previous types of punishment as inhumane. Um, And they really started to advocate for detention itself as being a type of punishment. Um, And also the idea of rehabilitation uh, became something that was integrated into the criminal justice system. And so reformers started to propose prisons that were places that you know, someone would go and they would stay there for a certain period of time and they would reflect or repent or be reformed through some sort of labor. And then they would be released having overcome their criminal um, proclivities. And there were different designs that we saw um, sort of come to be uh, different models around the world. But that's where you first really start to see what we might think of as spaces that resemble modern prisons with, you know, individual cells and long hallways and cell blocks and um, things that look similar to what we might see today.
1: It's interesting because, as you pointed out in the book, over time, Prisons have actually kind of leaned into this isolationist aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, They've kind of leaned into more and more isolation. And they've also kind of leaned into the idea of, um, I think it was Bertrand Russell's Panopticon. Was it Russell? Uh, No, Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham. I'm so sorry. Jeremy Bentham. The dude dude who is preserved on display in a Mm -hmm. museum in England. Anyway. um, I did not know that. Oh, yeah I I think actually it might be a, a university but yeah I think his uh he had his body like stuffed and preserved particularly his head um uh-huh. <laughs> But yeah uh so yeah he had this idea of the panopticon the idea that there's this all seeing state where you are under observation all the time right. um and that has become come to fruition in modern prisons both the isolation and the constant observation What have the effects of that really been?
0: Well, those are slightly different things. I mean, we now, it is abundantly clear that isolation and what we now typically think of as solitary confinement is one of the most damaging things you can do to a human being. I mean, a lot of um, experts say it's a form of torture, and I don't disagree with them on that. It is, it wreaks its havoc, you know, in a variety of different ways, but really by cutting people off from all social interaction, relationships, stimulation, um, it has effects on the the body and the mind. It causes sort of mental breakdowns and even psychotic breaks at a uh, staggeringly high rate. Um, I forget the exact figure, but I think one study of men in solitary confinement, it was you know, in the 80% range, started having delusions. Um, I think as high as 40% of people in solitary confinement for extended periods of time actually begin to hallucinate. Um, you see most people sort of develop what they themselves, um, characterize as irrational anger. Um, they feel like they're being persecuted. They become depressed. Uh, they develop a variety of physical symptoms like heart palpitations um trouble sleeping, loss of appetite. Um, and a lot of these symptoms and um sort of effects can last even after solitary is over. Um, one thing I did was I corresponded with a number of men in solitary confinement, including people who had spent years there. Um, and they talk about how even now that they're out of confinement, like they've developed a really short fuse that they still struggle to get under control. Um, they feel numb, they feel angry and those can have effects even, you know, after release and when they're back home with their families. Yeah. It's
1: not good for anybody. Um, and so that's, that's an issue as well as, um, kind of the dehumanization of, Mm -hmm. um, the increased surveillance, um, as well as the, um, solitary confinement. Um, and so there's a lot of call now to um, kind of redesign prisons. Um, and so I was really moved by your description of Las Colinas' uh, detention center. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how this detention center, which is a prison, is different from the kind of prisons that we think about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um it's a women's uh, detention center, which is interesting because um, the architects who designed it did get some pushback for designing the sort of, quote unquote, more humane uh, correctional facility. Um, and they suspect that they might not have been able to do it at all if it had been designed for men, that there's something about it, the inmates being female, that sort of made it slightly more palatable for the public. Um, that's sort of a different point, but something that I think is interesting. Um, yeah, but,
1: for many people, the cruelty is the point. Exactly. Um,
0: the and even though there is this sort of growing humane prison movement, um, I would say like, it's, def- it's mostly been implemented so far at juvenile facilities. And to a lesser extent for women and then to an even lesser extent for men. Um, but in any case, um, this uh, detention center, a Las Colinas, it has sort of what's a, a campus style design. And what's interesting is that the architects who uh, won the contract um, had actually not done a correctional facility before, but they were known for educational design. They designed a lot of schools and campuses. And so they sort of deliberately brought that sensibility um, to Las Colinas. Um, so I went to visit it and you walk in, you know, there's security, it's still a secure facility. Uh, but as you drive up, there's no obvious fencing or razor wire, they sort of hid the barriers behind landscaping, both on the inside and the outside. So you don't get this imposing sense of, you know, this is a bad place. And you walk in and go through security and what stretches out before you is sort of this vast lawn. I mean, it feels like the quads at my college campus. Um, and, you know, there are volleyball nets str- uh, strung up, and there are women sitting outside and chatting. Um, and there are different housing units dotted around the campus. But one of the big ideas behind it is sort of this freedom of movement. Um, and there are still rules and limitations, like this is still a detention facility. But for the you know, 70% of women who are classified as a low security risk, they can move around the campus with a degree of freedom. There's a separate cafeteria. So, you know, they walk out of their sort of what are essentially dorms and can walk to the cafeteria. There's a classroom building, there are work buildings, there's an outdoor amphitheater, there's a fitness center. Um, and, you know, I don't want to give the impression that this is like a spa, which it's sometimes sort of derided as like, oh, this is a country club for criminals. Um, It's still very clearly a correctional facility. This is not a place that you would want to be sent. But it affords these women a lot more sort of dignity and humanity and control over their environments um, and their lives while they're there. And,
1: you know, I think a lot of the concept of of early modern prison design was on this idea of oh we're going to put you in by yourself and you have to reflect on what you've done until you're sorry mm-hmm. um and uh i, I was wondering uh, you know we know that modern prisons are not great uh for recidivism they you know cause a lot of really nasty things um does this center um Los Colinas does does it what does it mean for recidivism does it help so that's a really interesting
0: question. Um, And the short answer is we don't know yet. Um, the county, uh, this is in San Diego County. So the county is apparently collecting that data. Um, but I don't think it's been long enough yet. Um, I believe it opened in 2012. So I think to track recidivism is, you know, people have to come and serve their sentence and then be released. And I think it's sort of a longer term project. So last time I checked, they did not have data on that yet. They are tracking it. But what they do have data on is, um, so there was a detention, women's detention center there before um, that was replaced. It was sort of run down and um, dirty and sort of a, a harsher environment. Um, and they collected data after they moved to the new facility and they found that um, violence dropped 50%. So that's both um, inmate on inmate violence as well as inmate on guard attacks. Um, that was almost an immediate and very apparent, um, improvement when they moved, uh, open the new facility. And they've also done some post-occupancy, sort of some more qualitative research interviewing guards and the women themselves about, you know, what they think of the environment and the setting. And, um, it gets positive marks in that regard. In terms of recidivism, that's still an open question. I mean, the hope is definitely that it would reduce it, uh, but we don't have the data on that yet.
1: Well, I also just wanted to finally ask just a couple of uh, (laughs) questions kind of about the ideas behind this book. Um, So you're a pretty indoorsy person, as you mentioned. Yep. Um, Do people ever make you feel bad about it? Um, You know, I don't
0: think explicitly. I do think there is a bit of sort of a cultural um, sort of a, a way that being outdoorsy is valorized uh, in culture. Um, and for reasons I understand, I mean, I think the outdoors is great. And one of the things that, you know, my research and reporting showed is that bringing elements of the outdoors, especially plants and nature into your home is one of the best things you can do to improve indoor environments. Um, but I do think there is this way in which, like, you know, if you don't like hiking, it's because you can't hack it, or you know, you don't have sufficient appreciation for nature. So I do yeah, think there's, there, there's a of bit of that of
1: moral purity about right. being outdoorsy that right. somehow you're more, I don't know, better somehow awake to the world. Right. Um, and I, I mean, think there's
0: this Instagram hashtag that. People may know of, uh, hashtag get outdoors and, um, which is sort of, you know, part people post photos of themselves hiking with hashtag get outdoors. Um, and that's sort of a product of that. But I mentioned that because when I've been posting about my book, I've been using the hashtag get indoors, uh, which maybe I don't need to tell people these days (laughs) because we're all indoors plenty. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you don't, I think there's a reason that that is not a popular hashtag on Instagram.
1: Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. There's this kind of sense of, of moral purity in this idea that somehow it's better to be outside and, and be close to nature. And I, I actually wanted to ask, you know, you've thought a lot about interior design, not interior design. That makes it sound like decorating. That's not what I'm talking about. No, I understand. <laughs> yeah. You've thought a lot about, you know, building design. What's good about being indoorsy?
0: Um, that's an interesting question.
1: I mean, I guess
0: in my instinct to always give caveats, I do think it's great to get outside. Um, I enjoy going outside. I have a dog that I walk, you know, four times a day, and it's nice to be outside. But there's something about being indoors, especially in your home, and especially if you have a home that you like, that just feels sort of cozy and safe and comforting. Um, You know, you're surrounded by people and things you love. And, you know, I've always been a big reader. And so like curling up, especially when the outdoors is inhospitable, like it's rainy or cold curling up in bed or in a favorite chair with a book and like a cup of tea. There aren't very many things that sound better than that to me.
1: And I also wanted to ask as an indoorsy person who wrote a book on the great indoors. <laughs> yes. Do you have any advice for people who might be stuck indoors? Right now, um, I mean, it's
0: I, I unfortunately can't provide advice on that change the reality of our circumstance. Um, but I do think it is important to try to create as much as you can an indoor space that is those things that I mentioned that is safe, that is comforting, that is secure, that feels good to you. And some of those things have been studied well by researchers. So like as I mentioned, it's really clear that bringing some sort of nature into your home or your workplace or whatever indoor space you're in is really good for you in all sorts of ways. And the interesting thing about that is that it doesn't even have to be real nature. So even if you don't have houseplants, putting up a nature photo or even playing nature sounds can have a lot of the same benefits for our health. Um, so there's that. But then also, personally, what feels good to you, like to create patterns and colors and texture and points of interest that engage you um, to carve out privacy. I mean, I think something that's been talked about a lot uh, in terms of coping with the pandemic is you know, how to cope with isolation and how to find ways to still connect with people socially. And that is really important. But there's a flip side that's also really important, which is personal space and privacy. And if you're living in a one bedroom apartment with another person like I am, um, sometimes that can be difficult. But to find a way, if that's a situation, even if it's as simple as taking a long bath or saying, you know, I'm going to go into the other room and close the door and read for an hour. Finding those ways to create space for yourself and only yourself um, is also something that's really important.
1: Well, Emily, this book is just fantastic. I learned so much. It made me think of things in a whole new way. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
1: If you'd like to learn more about Emily Anthes and her new book, The Great Indoors, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behavior, Health, and Happiness, we've got links for you at scienceforthepeople.ca. And look, we know times are hard right now. Money's probably not something you want to spend. That's okay. Subscribe. Tell your friends about us and how our podcast inspires you. Take care of each other and spread some science on the way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported.
0: You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgauer, and me,
1: Rochelle Saunders.